reading this morning is from Mark um, 10, chapter uh, verses 32 to 52, and it's on on this um, Bible, Pew Bible. It's um, page 716. They were on their way up to Jerusalem, with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later he will rise." Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let one of us sit on your right and the other on your left in your glory. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink? Or be baptised with the baptism I am baptised with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, You will drink the cup I drink and be baptised with the baptism I am baptised with. But to sit on my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, with their high officials exercising authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Then they came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples together with a large crowd were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, that is the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, Have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of God, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, Call him. So they called to the blind man, Cheer up, cheer up, on your feet. He is calling you. Throwing his clothes aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. Thank you, Tara, and uh, good morning, everyone. A very warm welcome uh, to church today and a special welcome to you if you're watching us on the live stream 
or uh, some of you I know are listening on a telephone connection. How about that? And uh, if you're uh, at home today watching on the live stream because you uh, are, have tested positive for COVID-19, uh, please be sure of our prayers for you. And uh, if, um, if, if we've not contacted you, uh, then please, if you need help, do, do reach out because we would uh, uh, want to do whatever we can to, um, to help you in this uh, uh, time. But uh, as far as I am aware, that uh, those in the congregation with COVID-19 are doing reasonably okay under the circumstances, so that's, uh, that's the good news. Uh, let's pray as we uh, think about God's word. Father, we want to thank you for uh, this passage of scripture. And uh, we do ask now that uh, you'd clear our minds of those thoughts which would distract us and uh, by your spirit that you would grant us uh, understanding minds and uh, changeable hearts. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, how a person behaves uh, when they have been victorious, I think can sometimes be a little bit telling, uh, don't you? I mean, I noticed this last month during the Australian Open. Uh, one of the players, after winning his match, uh, was interviewed and uh, uh, all he wanted to talk about was how proud he was of himself and what a great player he is. <laughs> uh, but did you see Ash Barty's victory speech after she won uh, the final? Uh, it was a bit different to that. She, uh, she very warmly praised her opponent uh, she gave heartfelt thanks to the organisers, to the umpires, to the uh, ball kids, uh, to her team, uh, to the crowd, uh, but she said nothing about herself. Not a thing. It was all about others. And she just won a grand slam. Uh, why do people enjoy Ash Barty so much? It's not just because of her ability, uh, it's also because of her humility, don't you reckon? And we, we love players like that. Um, players like that, uh, and there are a good number of them, they are always popular, aren't they? Because in a world where there is so much selfish ambition, uh, humility can be somewhat refreshing, don't you reckon? A and we know what selfish ambition can be like. Um, perhaps not on the tennis court, uh, but maybe at work. You know, the, uh, uh, the person at work who just wants to climb the, uh, the ladder, climb to the, climb to the top, uh, regardless of how that might affect other people and the impact that they may have on others. Uh, or in other life settings uh, where someone just, just has to be the boss. Um, it might be at school. It might be uh, in the family. Uh, it may even be in the church. I mean, I think it's nice uh, when we meet someone who is truly great, but their focus is not on themselves. Their focus is on lifting up other people. Imagine how the, uh, the ball kids uh, would feel uh, when the champion publicly acknowledges them in their victory speech. I reckon that would feel pretty good, don't you? I reckon that would feel great. I'd feel uplifted. Humility. It's something which we could all do with a little bit more of. And in actual fact, uh, that was the case for the disciples of Jesus. 
uh, as we'll see in uh, today's passage. Uh, If you care to open up your Bibles at Mark chapter 10, uh, in Mark's Gospel we've seen how Jesus and his disciples always seem to be travelling, don't they? They always seem to be going from one place to another place to another place uh, for Jesus to preach uh, the kingdom. And in chapter 10, verse 32, uh, they're on the move again. Uh, But there's a little bit of a difference this time, and the difference is that there seems to be a change of mood. Uh, Check it out in verse 32, uh, where Mark tells us they were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were, what does he say, astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Astonished and afraid. Why is that? (laughs) Why would they be astonished and afraid? I mean, the disciples had been to Jerusalem with Jesus before, so what is different this time that they would be astonished and others would be afraid? Um, Mark doesn't spell it out for us, does he? But, you know, in Luke's Gospel, in Luke chapter 9, Luke says that Jesus and I quote, resolutely set his face to Jerusalem, to go to Jerusalem. And it seems that this is what's going on here. I mean, the disciples expected that in Jerusalem that Jesus would lead a revolt, that he would drive out the Romans, and he would establish himself as king. Uh, That was their expectation, and now it looks like Jesus is at the point where this is the time, that this is, uh, this is about to happen, that he has, there's something about Jesus and the way that he is leading them to Jerusalem that makes them astonished and others a bit afraid. But what should have actually astonished uh, the disciples is what Jesus says next. Uh, where in verses 33 to 34, he explains to them what will happen uh, when they get to Jerusalem. The Son of Man, he says, will be betrayed. How about that? I wonder, have you ever been betrayed by someone? It's dreadful, isn't it? It's dreadful because uh, someone uses your trust in them to actually harm you. That's betrayal. And it's dreadful. Uh, And in verse 33, Jesus uh, would be that victim. Jesus would be betrayed. And he would be handed over to the Gentiles. And the Gentiles would mock him. They would whip him. And they would kill him. And three days later, Jesus would rise. Now, this is not the first time that Jesus has told this to the disciples. He's already told them at least twice before. But it seems that, you know, they've, they've got selective hearing. <laughs> it seems that way because the disciples understand that, you know, that from the Old Testament prophets that one day God's king would rule his kingdom. And they've seen the miracles of Jesus. They've heard his teaching. It seems that Jesus fits that bill. And so all this talk about being arrested being mocked, being killed, that just doesn't make any sense. They're not thinking about this. Uh, They are are just thinking about the new kingdom and their place in the new kingdom. 
Which is why uh, two of the disciples take Jesus aside just to have a little bit of a quiet word with him. Check it out in verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Really? <laughs> you can imagine Jesus uh, thinking about this. Okay, you want me to do it, whatever you ask. Is that a fact? And so in verse 36 he replies, well, what do you want me to do for you? And what, how, how did they answer? I said, well, uh, in your new kingdom, uh, how about you making us your two top officials? Uh, one of us sitting on your right hand, one of us sitting on your left. You know, one of us can be your prime minister, the other one can be the treasurer, that sort of thing. How do James and John view greatness? Uh, they think it's about status, about importance, about power. And so how did Jesus respond? Well, verse 38, he says, You don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptised with the baptism I am baptised with? We can, they answered. Jesus said, You will drink the cup I drink and be baptised with the baptism I am baptised with, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. Now, in the Bible, to uh, drink from someone's cup means to share their fate. And in this case, it would mean to share in the suffering of Jesus. And to be baptised means to be immersed. Uh, it means to be overwhelmed. And in this case, to be immersed and overwhelmed with the suffering of Jesus. Do you remember in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus knew that he was about to be betrayed, what did he pray to God the, his Father? He says, if it's possible, may this cup pass from me, this cup of betrayal, this cup of suffering. It's about suffering. You know, uh, James and John uh, they want to share in Jesus' glory, but Jesus asks, well, can you share in my suffering? And how did they respond? No worries. <laughs> Not a problem. Yes, we can. Of course we can do that. They're clueless, aren't they? They don't have the foggiest idea because they are blinded by selfish ambition. And they're not alone in that. Uh, how do you think that the other disciples uh, reacted when they got wind of this particular conversation. Well, in verse 42, we're told that they were indignant um, because to them, uh, James and John were just queue jumpers because they all wanted the top job. We know that this is how they were thinking because uh, back in chapter 9, which uh, Benjamin preached for us a few weeks ago, remember Jesus caught them having an argument and he said, what are you arguing about? As if he didn't know. And what were they arguing about? They were arguing about which of them is the greatest. That was, the, that was a bit of an embarrassing argument for them to have. And so what do they need? What do these disciples need? They need a lesson in humility. It's not going to go astray, is it? Check out verse 42. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. 
and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. Now, I think it's, it's difficult for us to appreciate just how radical that teaching uh, was at the time, um, because uh, although in our, our culture does promote the, um, and drive us to think that greatness uh, is about success, it is about power, uh, it is about money, uh, there's something in our culture uh, whereby we, we do actually respect humility. We do respect humility. And I think that that's uh, because for the last 2,000 years our culture has been infused with the teaching of Jesus that has changed our thinking in that regard. It wasn't always that way. And it wasn't that way in the ancient world, especially amongst the pagans, the Gentiles, the, the, uh, <clears throat> the, the Greeks and the Romans. Uh, to the Greeks and the Romans, any sporting champion who's just won a victory and gets up to make his victory speech and just thanks and praises everybody else, including the person who he's defeated, and says nothing about himself, well, they would have thought that that was weakness. Uh, whereas the sporting champion who got up and talked about what a great player he was, <laughs> that would have been perfectly okay. No one would have had a problem with that. Uh, in fact, in the ancient world, uh, the people used to write lists and have lists inscribed on stone of of all of their great achievements, and that was we would cringe at that. But for them, no, that was normal. Um, because the goal in life in the ancient world uh, was to achieve honour and to avoid shame. In fact, the most shameful person, the, the most shameful thing uh, that uh, a son could do you know, the worst thing that a son could do would be to bring shame upon his father and upon his family, uh, to, um, to maximise honour and to avoid shame. They would humble themselves before the emperor, uh, but they wouldn't humble themselves before their peers, and they would certainly not humble themselves before their inferiors. No way. And so in verses 43 to 44, uh, Jesus takes that model of greatness and he turns it on its head. Want to be great in God's kingdom? Become a slave. Become a servant. How much prestige, how much honour does a slave have? None. Nothing at all. What does a servant do? <laughs> a servant takes care of the needs of other people. A servant puts the needs of other people before themselves. There's no honour in that. Now, how does this... Um, th does this mean that Christians uh, should never uh, occupy positions of power and authority? Well, no, it doesn't mean that. Uh, the issue is how we use our power, how we use our authority. Some of the early Christians uh, we know were, were slave owners. They were slave masters. 
And in passages like uh, uh, Ephesians chapter 5 and Colossians uh, chapter 4, for them, being godly did not mean switching positions with their slaves. Uh, Being godly meant that they would do something which was very radical and that they would actually treat their slaves with respect. Now, that was unheard of. But it is a natural consequence of following Jesus, who in one of the um, most stunning and most beautiful statements uh, says this in verse 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, a few weeks back uh, in um, Mark chapter 9, we looked at the transfiguration. Do you remember that? When Jesus went up onto the mountain with uh, three of his disciples and uh, Jesus' clothes became dazzlingly white and miraculously Moses and Elijah appeared alongside Jesus and uh, God spoke from heaven. God the Father spoke from heaven saying, this is my son, listen to him. And in that passage, Jesus referred to himself as being the son of man, which, uh, as we've seen in earlier sermons, the prophet Daniel, that's the description the prophet Daniel used uh, of the one who he saw uh, in his vision of heaven who was, uh, who was anointed to be God's king, uh, the ruler over the entire universe. That's who Jesus is. And so is there anyone greater No. He is greater than everybody. He is greater than any monarch. He's greater than any president. He's greater than any dictator. He's greater than any military ruler. He is greater. He is the king of kings. He is the lord of lords. And yet, he humbled himself and became a man. He became one of us. And he not only humbled himself and became a man... He allowed himself to be shamed. He put himself in the position where he knew he would be shamed, where he would be mocked, he would be arrested, he would be mocked, he would be whipped, and he would die the most dishonourable death. In fact, the crown that he wore was made of thorns, and the men on his right hand and on his left hand were criminals as he died on a cross to pay the ransom price for our sins. Now, one of the lowest people in ancient society was the beggar. And I think that's true in our society as well, isn't it? It's not a great deal, great deal different. But we see an example of that in uh, verses 46 through to 52, where they are now, they are near the city of Jericho, and a blind beggar named Bartimaeus, he heard that Jesus was passing by. He didn't see Jesus, of course, he couldn't see Jesus, but he heard about Jesus, he heard that Jesus was near, and so he shouted out for his attention. Now, how did others react to that? Well, in verse 48, we're told that they told him to shut up, to keep quiet, to close his mouth. I mean, 
He's just a lowly beggar. You know, he's the person who, if you're walking down the street and you see a person sitting down on the footpath and they've got a, a you know, <clears throat> they've got their hand out for some money, I don't know, do you sometimes feel tempted to take a bit of a wide berth? Sometimes? He's that guy. What right does he have to call for Jesus? What right do any of us have? When James and John had a quiet word with Jesus, what did they want from him? They wanted status, they wanted importance, they wanted power. When the blind man shouted out to Jesus, what did he want from him? He wanted mercy. Son of David, he cried out, have mercy on me. Mercy. That's all he wanted. That's all he wanted. And Jesus is resolutely heading towards Jerusalem, but a person asking him for mercy, well, that's going to stop him. (laughs) That's going to stop him. And as a beggar, Bartimaeus would have had one of his uh, items of clothing, perhaps his uh, cloak, uh, would have been uh, spread out on the path in front of him for people to, if they wanted to give him some money, to, uh, to put their money onto his coat. And when they told him that Jesus was willing to help him, he throws that aside, he jumps to his feet and he goes straight to Jesus. Now remember the question that Jesus asked James and John when they took him aside. He asked them, what do you want me to do for you? Well, friends, in verse 51, that is the exact same question that he asks the blind man. What do you want me to do? And the fellow says, I'd love to be able to see. That'd be great. That's all I want. Your faith has saved you, says Jesus. He received his sight and became a follower. He followed Jesus. How should we approach Jesus? Same way. Same way, isn't it? As beggars in need of mercy. And when we receive that mercy through his death on the cross for our sins... How should we change? Well, we'd, we'd want to become more like him, wouldn't we? We'd want to become like Jesus. And, and what that means is that our self-centeredness and our desire to be above others should crumble. Should crumble. For we, we no longer need to prove ourselves by our achievement. We no longer need to find our identity in the successes of this world. Because when we've received the mercy of Jesus, when we've received his forgiveness, we know that the one who matters most has loved us and he's actually humbled himself for our sakes. That's got to change everything, doesn't it? It's got to change our lives so that our lives become not centred around ourselves but centred around Jesus 
and centered around caring for others. You know, after the resurrection, um, James and John, they did come to understand what it meant to drink his cup. Not in the same way, because they didn't go to to the cross to pay for sin, but to share in his suffering and to be immersed in that, they came to understand that and they willingly suffered for the sake of the gospel. John was exiled. James, in Acts chapter 12, was executed. Not much honour in that. Not much honour in that. But both men learned through the gospel that true greatness is found in serving God and serving others. And so what about us? Well, we may or we may not be rich or powerful or successful or great in the eyes of the world. Doesn't matter, does it? The question is, are we humble? Do we serve other people in the same way that God in Christ has served us? Do we put the interests of others ahead of our own interests? Do we live in the same way that Christ lived when he came not to be served, but to serve? Loving, caring, praying for people and telling others about the mercy that they can receive in the gospel of Jesus. James and John were after the two top jobs. But listen to what John later wrote. I'm quoting from 1 John uh, chapter 4, I think, verse 16, 3.16. He said, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we thank you for the humility of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you that he didn't consider himself to be um, uh, so great that he couldn't humble himself and become a man. We thank you, Father God, that despite the unimaginable pain and suffering that he went through, that he was prepared to go to the cross and to die a shameful uh, death for our sakes. Father, we pray that um, the gospel itself would infuse our hearts and our lives, that um, it, our, our pride would dissolve and our desire to put others first um, would, uh, would reflect uh, that, the love that Jesus has shown for us. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.